Hey, this is Mike from Theology on Mission podcast, and this is part two of our conversation with Greg Armstrong, the director of admissions at Northern and pastor church planter of Renew Church in Lombard, Illinois. Greg joins Dave and I in this episode as we talk about the parsing of racism. Thanks for listening. podcast where theology engages issues of culture for mission i did come up with that tagline if i do say so myself did you did it changes almost every time we say it but you came (laughs) (laughs) but we're back and uh again um we're podcasting at a time that's um um a very uh, momentous time in our country's history in our neighborhoods uh having to do with um the awakening of this country as a whole across the country to the issues of police violence and racism and systemic racism in our country through the death and murder of George Floyd, um, as well as COVID, as well as other things going on in our culture. It's kind mm-hmm. of hard not to mention we have an election coming up in a few months. Yeah. Anyways, here we are. And I'm personally glad to be with you two guys. We have Greg Armstrong with us again. We introduced him on the last podcast as the man down the, down the uh, hallway, uh, director of admissions, pastor of Renew Church. Did you take that uh, title, Greg, from, uh, I'm talking Renew, from Greg Boyd? Did you steal it from Greg Boyd? No, I didn't know him at the time. Mm, I love that. (laughs) I didn't know Greg Boyd. So, I mean, Maybe. We're original. You're original. Okay. I think uh, I think Greg Boyd, Greg Boyd took it from Greg Armstrong. Right? The two Gregs <laughs> who got there first. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, the topic for should we get to the topic or should we keep uh, bantering? Uh, yeah, keep talking while my oh, phone is uh, going D- off. Dave's alarm's going off, reminding him that we have a podcast to record. Uh, let, let's uh, let's get into the topic. You want to introduce it? Oh, hey, oh, he's taking a I'm phone call. I'm in the middle of a podcast, dude. <laughs> I need your help. Okay, I'm in the middle of a podcast. I can't talk right now. <laughs> yeah, actually in the middle, uh, right in the middle of it. I can I can also pause this too if I need to. Okay, okay. I'll be back to you. Bye. <laughs> okay, that was Matt Tebby from another podcast called Gravity Leadership Podcast, and he wants me to talk on his podcast here in a few minutes. Whoa. We just can't stop podcasting. All right. Anyway, you, you want to introduce it, Dave? Yeah. Uh, what I wanted, to, what I thought, uh, the the parsing. I'm going to call this podcast the parsing of racism, and I want to play off on uh, John McWhorter, who is a uh, McWhorters, who is a, an African American professor of linguistics at Columbia University. He can be somewhat um, controversial mm-hmm. uh, at times, Mike Moore, kind of like you. Yeah, yeah. People get us confused all the time. And, and he, well, he can actually uh, get um, pro- progressive liberals mad at him. He yep. can get conservatives mad at him, kind of like you. That's why Dave loves this guy. <laughs> That's exactly why Dave <laughs> loves this guy. <laughs> I don't know if I love him, but I did appreciate this piece he did uh, mm-hmm. uh, in uh, the, was it the Atlantic? Uh, the Atlantic, yep. Yeah, and, and, and uh, okay, uh, I don't even have the title of the piece. Can you put it on yep. the... Um, yeah, the title of the piece is Racist is a Tough Little Word. The definite... Oh, no. That's not the title of it. I can find the title. 
I will, yeah, I'll folks, throw it up in the show notes. Sorry. <laughs> folks, we're going to smooth this podcast out. It's all going to come together. Just stay with us a little bit more. So anyways, uh, McWhorter starts out by saying that the term racist became uh, a very common word, rapidly replacing the word prejudice starting around 1970. And it was mainly understood, you know, dictionary style definition as prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone, an individual of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. And uh, of course, uh, what, what sits in the memory here is that it's wrong to think people are inferior just because of something having to do with their skin color or their ethnicity or, and, and, and just treat them in that way. Uh, uh, purely because of that. Um, now, the point here is, is this is an individualistic kind of a thing. Racism is, the, is a category of the individual. And beneath this understanding of racism is, if I can point out you're a racist and you can confess you're a racist and straighten it out and then change your behavior, you are no longer a racist. And if you can do that to other individuals, by golly, we're going to solve the problem of racism. And uh, so that's the first kind of racism, an individualistic kind of racism. Over the next uh, 50 years, however, the term has morphed, according to McWhorters, and I think we all know that, and it's morphed into uh, referring to the, uh, an animus that is beyond conscious, deliberate behavior. In fact, um, it can be covert. It can be as harmful as any kind of individual racism, but it is more of a cultural racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, it's built into the systems. I, he gives an example of like, you know, uh, the black couple, less familiar, seems it, it is less familiar and will have, um, will get a lesser car loan than a white couple with the same income and credit. Will get a worse mortgage or actually will not even be able to get a mortgage. Uh, yet has the same income and credit of the white couple that do. And so there's all these systematic issues. I would even go beyond that and say it's built into discourses and the way we talk and uh, subtle things we do that uh, disadvantage, say, an African-American versus a white person. There are ways we do leadership that are, are just inherently white and white people are conditioned to that we demand the African-American do or he or she shall be mistreated. So it's much more than just an individual thing. It is uh, a white supremacy. It is a whiteness and it even becomes internalized in the way we're raised. It's a cultural systemic thing. Okay. I just, uh, we're going to go to the third racism in a moment here, but just, I think just being able to clarify that, we've all heard that. I think most of us in Fitch's Theology of Church and Culture classes that have read Cornell West or, or Willie Jennings or J. Cameron Carter or James Cone or what have you would know that. But I think a lot of people from different generations, <clears throat> let's say you, you grew up in the 70s and you learned about racism according to that first term. And now you're waking up 50 years later and you're going, what? Uh, I've changed my behavior. What are you talking about? I just did a racist thing. What are you talking about white supremacy? I'm not a white supremacist. It's a complete talking past one another. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of pastors could be helped if they can just take McWhorter's article and say, look, you need to understand these two ways of talking about the term racist. Comments from you, Mike Moore. Comments from you, Greg Armstrong, on, on that one distinction McWhorter's makes. I agree. Yeah, I don't, you know, I got, I need that piece. I, you know, I, I don't see the individual racist piece is always informed by the greater cultural, um, the greater cultural implications of racism. I don't understand, what I don't understand is how we cannot do a simple historic uh, diagnosis of America, which in my opinion is very clear that racism in itself as a social construct, which is what I believe, is 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 embedded in the in in just in the fabric of our country, period. I mean it's 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 to me, it's the most obvious um it's the most obvious uh, uh, outlook of why we are where we are. It began with uh uh, the history of racism, slavery, et cetera, et cetera. And it's been redefined over the generations, but an individual racist is only informed by a cultural implication of racism and prejudice. So I would almost not number one, which it sounds like he's doing, mm-hmm. he's kind of drawn the two. I would knock number one and say, yeah, we are in a, it's a systemic peril. Um, that we are associated with as it relates to racism. And I think if we're going to have the conversation about racism and injustice, it has to be on the shoulders of um, one, the history of America. Um, I would also say a Western theology. I would also, you know, uh, say, um, well, I'm going to leave it to those two. I'll let you jump in, Mike. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, before we go on to Mike, sorry, Mike, mm-hmm. I don't yep, want to. You're good. But uh, Greg, uh, I know tons of white people who have not moved from an understanding of racism, from racism number one to racism number two. You're, you're, dude, you're, you're a post-structuralist. And I don't know if I can take any credit for that because I've had you in a few classes or not. But you're a thoroughly post-structuralist. An individual can only come out of a culture. There is no such thing as an individual on his own. And, right. you know, I, I, could, I could basically get up and... and sing a hymn of thanksgiving to god for that but we have i don't we've got millions of people especially white people who are who think only in terms of racism number one and if you are in racism number two which i think most people under the age of 35 maybe even under the age of 40 now understand we're never going to get to we're going to be frustrated as all get out notice i didn't say i didn't swear we're going to be frustrated as hell when that guy or that woman can't ever get out of one to two unless we can help bridge them from one to two yeah what do you think you can we can respond to that because if you think of our country america if you think of our churches theologically Hyper individualism is is at the root of I'm okay, I'm not racist. We don't inform our practices based on the greater culture. We all are steeped in some sort of cultural um, uh, a reality. And I think I think in the world that we live in, where we all can say, well, 
you know, well, I got mine, you know, I get, to, I say what I say. We all have this individual freedom, et cetera, et cetera. We don't think even biblically, we don't think communal. We don't think in terms of community that, you know, I wrote recently that oftentimes I was trying to get my white brothers and sisters to understand that perhaps you are experiencing the ramifications of the sins of forefathers, right? So you have inherited a culture. You have inherited a system that you feel is unfair because you're not a racist. But the reality of our country is you are, the system was designed for you. So you, in a sense, without a proper, I don't know how much, how churchy we want to get with this, but without a proper repentance or even acknowledgement of the communal system and the community of racism and the culture of racism, without a repentance to that, you'll never think that you're a racist. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's a big, there's a big cultural and maybe it's a generational gap too. For the last two weeks, I haven't heard anybody in, I guess in the circles I operate in, I haven't heard any anybody denounce racism. Like that that word is so passe. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't heard anybody from a pulpit or from a protest say racism is bad. What, what I've heard is um, down with white supremacy, down with white nationalism. Check your whiteness. Like the, the, there has been a move, mm-hmm. and the, the, that bridge I think is what that bridge that needs to be built is what. Dave's referring to, I think there are a lot of white people who say, I'm not a racist. And then you're like, yeah, down with white supremacy. And they're like, well, like, wait, wait, what, what, what are you talking about? So I, I do think that there's a big gap there, even among white culture for how people understand racism, white supremacy, and just the overall oppression of what whiteness has done in America. Yeah. So, uh, Greg Armstrong, I think I'm, I think I'm with you, man. I think I'm totally with you. I think I understand actually every word you just said. No, I might be. Uh, I think I might be uh, too proud of myself, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much with you. But what, what I still so here's here's where here's the thing that sticks in my craw right now. Uh, there are still so many people that um, I'm not a racist. Uh, and I know, I know maybe Greg, you can't understand how a white person can say that, but in order to get that person out of his ideological formation out of racism, number one, that McCorders (laughs) describes, we're going to have to do some, I, I often hear, um, I want to get to this in a minute. I often hear white people cannot ask African-American people to teach us about racism. And I, there's this part of teaching about racism that no African-American should have to bear the burden of. And that is, you know, you need to understand the 400 years of history and what got us here and all the things that advantage you over an African-American person and other people. Uh, somehow we got to have a bridge. But when we, so what I want to, what I want to push for is we need to be able to discern the church. Everybody we're talking to today that leads a church, participates in a church, is an elder in a church. We need to provide ways for them to be able to lead people into discerning racism at work, first in the church, then in the world. And I'm, I'm thinking, and I'm submitting to you, both of you guys, you're both young, you're both good looking, kind of 
kind of makes me envious at times, the good looking part. Uh, and uh, now I lost track of what I was going to say. Uh, but we, we need to find ways to discern racism actually happening and how to lead people to a fuller and deeper understanding to discern how it happens. And if people never get the racism number two, they're not going to really be capable of listening. You know, when you just said that, or you just did that, or you implemented a policy like that, or, you know, when I parked my car and you said, I can't park my car in that, you know, 50 different ways you just disadvantaged me and made me this, this, and this. It will never get to those conversations, which will break down and restore and lament and heal uh, if we can't get person number one yeah. into being person number two. Have I overstated myself, Greg? Uh, no, I want to offer a solution, potential solution. And I think, um, I think where we're, I agree with you, that it begins with the church. And I think that's where we're missing the big step because we don't acknowledge racism as a gospel issue and we don't acknowledge racism as a sin issue. And we are okay with, especially in the white evangelical space, we're okay with adding racism as a supplemental discipleship tool. But in my opinion, I think we need to consider in every church, every denomination, et cetera, especially from the white pulpit, a robust discipleship in racism. If racism is America's greatest sin, in my opinion, I think in many ways, it is the fabric, it is it is interwoven in the fabric of our country, it is racism. In the church, outside of the church, if the church is going to lead the cause in dismantling supremacy, privilege, etc., there must be a robust discipleship. And what do I mean by that? I mean that just as much as we disciple in every area of your finances and your relationships and all these other ways, I think in every church leadership, there needs to be an intentional discipleship. I think it needs to be right next to discipling you as a new believer. I think we need to say as, as an American church, as a white American church, we will not be, uh, I won't say it like that. Uh, we will not be as effective as I believe God wants us to be if we don't lean into the realities of racism. So with that being said, your next step in your next steps process is sitting down and listening to and being discipled in what racism looks like in America, whether you agree with it or not. Now, here's where the issue comes in. Here's what I've been telling a lot of my white brothers and sisters is that it almost calls for sort of a martyrdom of the white evangelical leader because they're, the, the white evangelical leaders are getting more pushback than anybody else when they bring up, all they're saying is, hey, I stand with my brothers, Black Lives Matter, and people are eating them up. And there's this apprehension now because it's going to affect the bottom line. It's going to affect capital. It's going to affect membership. It's going to affect people. And so there's almost needed in this generation sort of a, a consortium of martyrdom from white leaders to say, racism is a gospel issue and we're going to engage it just like we do every other gospel issue in our churches because it's that important. Otherwise we're going to spin our wheels. The whole George Floyd thing's going to simmer down. And in about six months, we're all going to be back to our normal kind of how to have a great family, how to budget your money, how to do this, how to do that. And we think those are prominent gospel issues, but then we're still dealing with the perils of racism and injustice. So that's my proposed solution, though probably flawed at the moment, uh, 
but that's where I'm leaning into. Um, I, I don't think that's as, uh, unrealistic as maybe it sounds. Uh, we have already had several pastors, Greg Boyd, who is a professor at Northern seminary, ladies and gentlemen, when he, when he spoke out against white, uh, excuse me, American nationalism, the myth of a Christian nation, Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he lost, I don't know, over half his congregation. And it was a large, it was a 5,000 member congregation. And other people have done that, like Brian Zond, uh, two Anabaptist white dudes. I don't, I, I think there might be, this call from Greg might be a realistic call. Of course, um, there's a lot of us in smaller churches that wouldn't, would not only not lose anybody, but might gain a whole bunch of people if we, uh, said something similar to that. Yeah. All right. Uh, let me just go uh, to um, this last racism. And, uh, and, uh, and this is a little controversial, but McWhorter's references this one more kind of racism. He tells the story of how Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called out House Speaker Nancy Pelosi for the way she was criticizing the squad. Now, you know, the squad is those four younger Congresswomen of color. And uh, she was, that's the phrase I think they've accepted for themselves. And, and anyways, um, um, she was saying their political positions are unduly demanding and AOC uh, kind of accuses P- Pelosi of being of her, of her critique being aimed at them because they are people of color. And she basically accuses Pelosi of being a racist on some level. And McWhorter pushes back and says, do you think that if the squad were again four white ladies of Scandinavian heritage with the same social media presence that Pelosi would not have, would have stayed mom? And so uh, what he says is that um, this kind of racism, well, he doesn't call it this, but I call it an ideological use of racism. This is where the term, and and now I'm kind of playing on it in terms of my own understandings and the way ideology works. We take a term out of discipleship, out of discerning what's going on with you, with me, with us, with our policies, with this thing that happened in our community, with the mayor, with this, with our, uh, the way we handle money, with this, with the, we take it out of the actual day-to-day concrete situations of discipleship. And now we use it as a weapon uh, to divide me against you. And McCorders talks about that a little bit as counterproductive, but um, I wonder what you two think. Do you see, um, so I, I'm arguing racism, number one, needs to be discerned from racism, number two, and we need to find a bridge from those who are still stuck in the 1970s racism to help them understand all these racial dynamics, cultural racism, 400 years of history, the way the society is built, white supremacy, etc. But then there's this third uh, issue where often racism now becomes the tool of division, anger, even taking somebody down and making myself feel better about it by doing that and how counterproductive that is 
to the work of Jesus Christ. You were talking about salvation, Greg. I think God mm-hmm. wants not only discipleship, but he wants to save people in the middle of the healing that's going on with the racisms of our country. Mm-hmm. And if we go to this space of making points and hurling uh, objects, we do, God can't work in the antagonisms of racism. Now that's all coming from a white guy of privilege and, and so forth. So I, I defer to both, both Greg and Mike on this and see if you have any comments. Yeah. I- it sounds like McWhorter's is, is making this point that this third wave form of racism is also divisive, right? It, it, if I'm understanding it right, like that this is also divisive because it pits people against another. And he, he also says, I don't think it's in that article, but in another article, he talks about third wave um, anti-racism as a new secular religion. Like the original sin is being white, um, salvation is attesting to your whiteness um judgment day is coming to terms with your whiteness any microaggression is blasphemy so he, he talks about this as being like a brand new secular religion and oh, they, thanks for throwing a whole nother layer of uh <laughs> wow well i well i i think i think it's important because what, what he's saying is that the secular religion the way that racism works in it is it's ideological it pits people against one another it's easy to draw the lines of who's in or who's out or you're able to use the word racist um as a a a way to to virtue signal and like immediately place distance between you and another person well all right well well, can we stick so alexandria uh cortez uh acacia cortez she she doesn't discern anything in kind of accusing Pelosi of being a racist. Right. He doesn't say you're being a racist because, and this is how you're hurting the cause because, and our policies are not racist because she just says you're being a racist because, and, and she actually doesn't do any concrete discernment. She just divides her from she AOC from Pelosi. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. What happens when we take racism and, and white privilege out of concrete discernments to becoming the tools of division, anger, and antagonism, which, according to my theological judgment, that's not the place God can work. So, okay, I just said a lot, Greg. You got the floor, man. Sorry. (laughs) I mean, as a tool, I can see that being a reality. You know, I would argue the experiences of the one that are, the experiences of the one that is kind of projecting those um, accusations upon the other. Um, I think it could be divisive. I still think it still ties into the system. And if I'm clarifying, I may need clarification in that Pelosi was accused of racism. By AOC. By by AOC. And it was used as a tool. This is what he's arguing. It was used as a tool of separation. Kind of a quick fix, like you're a racist, period. There's no discerning. There's no There's no discerning of actual concrete racist issues. What did she do that was racist? She just okay. accused her of being a racist uh, to gain ground. To gain, you know, again, man, I th- I think that's tied into number two, in my opinion, because uh, considering considering experience, considering context, um, 
that's an appropriate response in some situations where there is no discernment needed. Like the discernment is the reality, right? Um, The discernment is the reality of, 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 of life for many, which is, you know, you're, and I know it could be, I know it could be a quick gash and I know it could be kind of a, a quick like murderous tool in a sense, but uh, it can't, I'll agree that it can be used as a tool of separation, which I don't, I don't agree with that. Uh, but I also can agree with that the discerning has already happened in a sense that every individual situation can doesn't have space for discernment. I'm not saying that's in this case, I'm saying every situation is like, you know, you've shown yourself, you've shown who you are. I think in this last week or so, there's so many people who claim, so many white people who claim to be anti-racist, but don't even know that what they've said what they've accused others of has played into the larger reality that I can actually call you out. I don't need to discern that like that, that my friend, I've seen that enough to know that you don't know it, but that's racism. So, yeah. but Greg, I'm, don't I'm, just, I'm dipping in both waters. Don't you have to, when you call somebody a racist in order that it doesn't turn into kind of like an empty gesture, um, don't you agree there? Of course, there might not be space. Uh, we all know people who are not, we, maybe the majority of people are not willing and open to discuss their own racism, which is a problem. But still, I guess the principle is something I want to hold on to. When we, when we at, give somebody the adjective racist, there must be some discernment there or else it's not discipleship. It's, it can turn into hollow gesturing. And yes. at that point we lose the body of Christ or we actually lose the power of the word itself and it becomes an ideological tool. Right, right. And I believe that's what Trump does a lot. Yeah. And I believe that people let him get away with it and it becomes an ideological tool. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just asking us to think about these discernment these three kinds of racism as means to discern that we can unravel the racism that's going on and not turn this into a um, antagonistic, destructive exercise. Yeah. Dave, would you, would you say this also happens on a corporate level as well? Because if I can give you an example, um, the last two weeks I've seen every corporation, every large company put out a statement about why they are anti-racist, why they're against white supremacy. And you have a whole HR PR section of your company just to manage your public image so you don't enter into cancel culture. So when something like this happens, you say, we're not racist. Boom. We're just going to put it out there. Um, This is why we're not racist because we made this tweet or um, we're going to do this gesture without actually examining like how the capitalist economy these corporations are built on are racist in and of themselves and how these corporations have benefited from systematic racism. uh, Yeah. You, uh, Greg already over uh, made made that same point. And I agree with both of you on this point. Uh, Even anti-racism can become an ideological posture that has no concrete, uh, uh, actual lived discerning re- in, in the actual situations we're involved in. And at this point it becomes posturing and posturing is bad. 
posturing, all it does is it sets us against another and we don't get anything done on the ground. And by the way, this happens with sexuality. This happens with other religions. Oh, you're a Muslim. Well, I don't even know what a Muslim is. How do you even know I'm a Muslim? Well, you're one of those Islamic blah, blah, blah. And, and we ne- it breaks down relational engagement and how God's going to change the world. That's why I think McWhorter's article, I don't always agree with him. I don't even know if I agree with the article you pointed to, Mike, because I haven't read it yet. But I think his parsing of these three kinds of racism can help us discern uh, daily concrete engagements, all the microaggressions that happen. Why is that a microaggression? And all the things that, that we need to learn if we're going to allow God to work in our lives, in each other's lives, in our churches, and in our neighborhoods. Yeah. Folks, if you didn't hear what Armstrong and Moore did just there, I think it was an amen, but it wasn't a very <laughs> It was a it was sort of a it was um, we, okay. we were nodding. We were nodding. Um, maybe, okay. Which is all good. Yeah. So fit the, the NFL puts out a statement, right? We yeah. we we have already in a sense kind of globally discerned, right? The position of the position of the NFL. What, and I'm not, I'm not overtly calling them racist. I'm just saying the structures and the systems that support the NFL, majority white owners, you got Kaepernick in there, you got the, the, uh, the league owners, you got, you got the players beginning to speak out, right? There is a racist system, right? This is spoken by the players, and, and that's there. And so Goodell comes out and says, hey, listen, we made a mistake. We're not racist. Of course we're not. Like, we're with you. Black Lives Matter. There's no discerning for me in that moment. There's a exactly. There's a, you, you, that's you're racist, right? Now, exactly. I'm, I'm saying so. So so there's no there's no discerning there. So I don't. Okay, know wait a minute. If, you are. I argue you are discerning. You noticed that he didn't say the words Colin Kaepernick in the speech, right? Sure. You're discerning. And by the way, I've heard I've seen other African American NFL players. Why didn't you mention Colin Kaepernick? You haven't repented of anything. Actually, it's the same old damn system. By the way, I'm a Canadian Football League fan, folks, not an NFL fan. I hate the NFL. <laughs> Capitalism going awry. But anyways, uh, the point is uh, they, right. they are actually discerning something, and it's actually what, what's his name, Goodell is doing that I am saying is the ideological posture. We're not – doesn't mean anything. We're just saying we're – we're racist. Yeah. I, I, was, I was looking at it more. So I thought you meant discerning together. Well, we need, we will need to discern together. And when we're not doing when number three will look like Roger Goodell, is that his name? Mm-hmm. Roger yeah, Goodell. Yeah. Uh, that'll look like him doing that uh, pontificating thing using the word anti-racist, but it doesn't point to any specific yeah. discernments. That's what mm-hmm. Mike was saying. Hmm. Oh, this has been fantastic, folks. I think, there's, <laughs> folks, there's a moment in time when, when all of us agree at, 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 in the podcast, and I think it's very good now that we just close it with a song. <laughs> <laughs> the song's going in the background right now. We right? are one. Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> oh, man. Kumbaya. Kumbaya. Okay, folks. I'm sorry. That was a little bit cynical on my part. Uh, I want I think we can end it there. Uh, do you guys have any closing comments? If you don't, just feel free to say I don't. Thanks for letting me be a part, fellas. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Greg. 
thanks for coming on, Greg. Uh, I have enjoyed this time. We got to have you on. You are only down the hall when we do come back to uh, actually working in a building together. Um, <laughs> until that time, let's do it again. Folks, uh, it's time to say goodbye. And at the end of another Theology on Mission podcast, uh, it's been our pleasure to be with you. Um, if you feel the, if you're so moved to give us a uh, recommendation or a review, every re review, this is what Moore tells me, every review helps. So please help us get the word out about Theology on Mission podcast. Uh, but it's been our pleasure to be with you. Uh, and we're going to sign out now. Uh, over and out. Until next time, it's Mike Moore. Greg Armstrong, Dave Fitch.